I'm your host, Alexandra Marshall, and this week we are joined by Marcus Fu. So, Marcus Fu, welcome to Curtain Call. Hello. So, <laughs> I went to your Twitter bio, which is where everybody lives these days and where you do most of your political speaking and talking, and I took the bio, and in the bio it describes you as a young gay conservative writer member of both the Liberal Party and Young Liberals. You're interested in the royal family, ancient history, and of course, your beloved temples. But I also know that you happen to be trapped in the prison state of Western Australia and that you are a brand new Australian. Now, considering the identity boxes which you check, to one would have thought <laughs> that you would have joined the Labor Party or the Greens. Boo, were you tempted? Um. Well, I do remember one time, um, was a couple of years ago, I was a Pauline Hansen or something about Pauline Hansen appeared on television. And I think I instantly said that, um, I instantly mouthed off that she was a racist because obviously I've listened to her speeches before. Something happened along the lines in the final year, my second final year, my final year of high school. Um, I decided, okay, I'll join Twitter. Oh. No, it happened during the Brexit referendum and something, for some reason, I ended up supporting Brexit. I don't know why. I was clueless. I, I didn't even know what the European Union was. Um, but like, before or before that, I used to research about Margaret Thatcher, um, Ronald Reagan, Sir Robert Menzies. So I used to really like Margaret Thatcher. I used to watch her speeches. So I think that grew on me. Obviously, I became a conservative, and then I started campaigning for the Cowan Liberal Party in 2019. And I think during that campaigning, that just continued to grow on me. Um, in terms so of you were a relatively recent convert to the world of politics, I would that be fair to say? In the last five or so years, you've gotten involved in politics. Oh, definitely, yeah, especially as a young guy, definitely. Um, and I remember when I was in high school, I supported um, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton because, um, and then my friends started asking me and I started to feel, oh God, like, <laughs> like oh crap. Um, and then I was not aware of you know, the cultural wars and all that. And the more and more I got into politics, obviously the more and more I began to realize um, what the left really were, um, the cultural wars and what the politics really are. And it became more and more interesting. Down, so I began to write articles about it. And um, yeah, so 
Well, you so, write a lot of articles about liberty in particular, I noticed. That's one of the themes of your articles. But you have picked by far the worst state in Australia to write about liberty, which is WA. So who, <laughs> why do people keep voting for Labor in Western Australia? Do you have any theories about that? Well, well, I think well, I think there's a couple of theories. One of them, had it not been a pandemic, McGowan would be in trouble because he hasn't done much to WA. Like the merchant budget has gone up to two billion dollars. Not a single check has been laid. And before that, there was a dining room by-election, and Labor suffered. It was a nine percent swing against them, so they lost a seat of dining range. So the Liberals. Um, won that seat, but at the same time, the WA Liberal Party, the parliamentary team, they they were just not congealed uh, to take on the McGowan Labour Party because McGowan during the pandemic um, was very good in coming off as a um, uh, charismatic, competent leader, and of course, you know, he used the um, coronavirus fear to and basically scales all and when Zach Gilgut became the leader instead of you know talking about the businesses and families affected by the lockdown the border shutdown the tourism industry he decided that it would be best to um, side with the government on all the health advisors so there was no ammunition given to the Liberal Party and then then came the um Greens, the net, the new energy plan, which was the upgrade in the Labour Party. And this scared a lot of Liberal voters, and in particular, Collie, where there's a coal fire power station in that plan, they were going to get rid of that coal fire power station by 2025. Candidates and volunteers began to turn on good government. And when he said he was going to, con he conceded weeks before the election, it was like the Liberal Party just gave up. But I think it was mainly because they, not been very strong as a parliamentary team. And one of the upper house members, John Stimba, actually um, shut off on Twitter, said that this was years in the making, um, years in the making, that there were just not good enough pre-selections going on. Um, they were not, um, they were just not doing the hard work on policy, which is so important in opposition. So years in the making, none of them realised that, uh-oh, we're in deep trouble. And obviously, McGowan won a re-election because, um, well, of course... Well, you said he's charismatic. Like, you said McGowan is a charismatic leader and he's well-known well, across in New South Wales for being the man who wanted to put ankle bracelets on COVID patients, <laughs> which we thought was a bit of a step too far. <laughs> But what was it like being one of the young Liberals on the ground during that last election where you had to front up when you knew that you had a leader like um, Kirk up, you had to actually be there and go through the motions of an election when your leader's like, we're going to lose? What was that like? Well, I didn't campaign because I was busy with tape and work. But, you know, my when I saw um, Liberal campaigners um, at the polling booths, um, and I saw them uh, frustrated over how he was handling the uh, whole campaign. I just felt so sorry for them because I've been through campaign. It is tough. It is really tough. It is exhausting. It is so time consuming. And 
you know, these people give up their time willingly. And then it was just a badly run campaign. It was lackluster. Um, even Scott Morrison did everything in his power to not come to WA. <laughs> it's just like trying to avoid WA as much as possible. <laughs> You couldn't save Kirkup, let's be honest about that. I mean, he was a disaster before he even started a campaign. But uh, one last question about WA, just because us from the, the East Coast are curious. Uh, is there any hope on the horizon for the Liberals in WA? Like, is there any talent coming up or are you, are you currently basically without a political party that has any intention of winning? I don't think winning government should be our aim next election. It should be about gaining seats and rebuilding the party. In fact, the, one of the top W Liberal MPs in the federal parliament, the Senator Dean Smith, has proposed a plan for grassroots members to vote for the leader, not for the party, which is what people like John Ruddock has been advocating. But they're now um, putting in place a mechanism where you can join a policy subcommittee and obviously draw policy there. So I signed up for the education subcommittee, but also mechanism uh, for members and branches to also submit policy. And they also want to make sure that no leader can implement or put forward a policy about why the party input. The reason why the new energy plan fell was because there was no party input. It was like a captain call from Gikup, and that just blindsided the state party, the federal, his federal colleagues. It blindsided all campaigners and volunteers. So, obviously, we need to do a lot of rebuilding, but you know, Labour Party has been British before. When Campbell Newman won government, Labour was reduced to nine seats. Um, obviously, what we need to do is to um, rebuild the party. Uh, winning government is not the aim um, because we've got two members in the lower house, we've got seven members in the upper house, uh, but the Liberals have drawn on an agreement with the National Party um, to hold them a government account. Problem is the leader is the same shadow energy minister who was responsible for the new energy plan, so that's not... So you were basically governed by the person whose stupid idea it was lost you <laughs> in the first place. Brilliant. That's not, that's it, not going to be a winning like, strategy. It's like, it's, like, it's like still putting people like Chris Bowen on the shadow cabinet, even though he's, you know, in the Labour Party. It's Let's talk about your writing, because this is what you started doing, you become a political writer and you run two different blogs. The first is Bowie's Culture Blog, which is where you talk about your love of temples and traveling and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. And the second one, which is your political blog is called Bowie's Conservative Blog. Now you wrote an article recently, which caused a bit of a stir. And that was called The Repellent Arrogance of Leftist Identity Politics and Why the Sewell Report is Deeply Important. Now, this report is also known as the Report of the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. It was released in the UK. Um, and it was meant to be the long-awaited proof that activists have been praying for regarding ethnic disparities within the UK that they use as the justification, justification for all their race politics. But the left are furious with the report. Why is that? Because um, it 
finally broke down the myth that Britain was institutional racist, the ethnic minorities were being held against by structural institutional racist blocks. And um, it revealed that in areas of education, in health, and even in, even in pay gap disparities, ethnic minorities are performing white people. And data from Scotland revealed that ethnic minorities are actually living longer than white people. And actually since 2012, or in 2012, um, the ethnic minority pay gap has shrunk to 2.3%, which is very good. And in education, Asians are beating um, white British students in areas such as English and math. So it was written by a British-born Jamaican man, and the entire commission was made out of non-white ethnic minority experts across different fields. And it was written in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests, and it revealed that Britain still has some work to do that is not an institution versus um, country. And people like um, Labour MP Clive Lewis compared the commissioners to the Ku Klux Klan. Um, while the toxic voices in race relations debate, Dr. Charlotte Mott Shokba Mimu called Dr. Sewell a token black man. Professor Gopal of Cambridge University, who's another toxic voice, she compared him to Joseph Goebbels because they both have a PhD. And so they were just furious. Um, and it got to the point where the Equalities Minister, Kevin Bagnall, had to find up in Parliament to call for a nuanced debate. And uh, Labour MP Don Butler uh, condemned Bagnall when she condemned, the minister condemned um, the commissioners being called House Negro, House Slave, talking black men as gaslighting of a national scandal. And then she called it a shoppy Balan time, written by Muso Okwanga, who called Pretty Patel a racial gatekeeper, Sati Jaffe a racial gatekeeper, because they are from the Conservative Party of Britain, and because they hold influential um, offices. And she used that to justify calling the commissioners racial gatekeepers. And Don Butler is a um, Black Labour MP as well. So it was just a torrent, torrent of it's a bit strange how the people claim who claim to be anti-racist and are complaining about ethnic disparities are the ones throwing around racial abuse on the floor of parliament in order to justify their anger. I mean, that seems to be a bit strange. But the report is a big report. It's about 250 pages. And what it basically did was prove that the anti-European narrative of the left um, is a fabrication. Like the the uh, UK is not an institutionally racist country. Under the heading, What Lies Behind Disparity, the report actually says, the idea that all ethnic minority people suffer a common fate and a shared disadvantage is an anachronism. But that being said, and even though the report pretty much destroys the narrative, People still kill each other over a lie and Black Lives Matter and their rights have proved that. So when we're talking about the release of the report, um, has this actually changed race politics in the UK or do you think it'll just the whole Black Lives Matter uh, conversation and the institutionalised gender quotas and things like that, are they just going to continue unabated um, in the wake of this report? 
Well, um, I'm not sure. It all depends what the um, Equalities Minister or what Boris Johnson government is going to do. Um, the commission has released 24 recommendations, including getting rid of the homogenizing term BAME. Um, but it, it depends on what they're going to do with it. Um, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. like, the left has had a long march through the institution. It's got to take more than one, one report to bring them down. Like, they've been in schools, academia, politics, journalism. It's, it's going to be one hell, but it's going to take a generation, I believe, to rid of the left in, in this institution because the problem with conservatives is that we saw the culture war as being beneath the economy and jobs. And so for years and decades, we just didn't want to bother until we finally realized and went, oh, oh crap, they're in every institution. They're not just on Twitter or on the internet or, or just on university campuses. They're in every facet of society. So, um, so seven, it's going to take more than one report, but um, yeah, so yeah, I well, know the, the, left really, the left has really woven itself through the entire structure of our politics and our social lives. But you did touch on the fact that one of the things the report calls for is to end the phrase BAME. It also, in addition, wants to get rid of the, the uh, language of white privilege and white fragility. These are the sort of trending hashtags the left uses to attack people based upon their race. They are, it's quite a racist activity they engage in. But in your article, and I'm going to quote from your article, uh, you say, for them, meaning the activists, their precious identity grievance complex was hit by a report that is bringing down the myth that Britain is institutionally racist and that they don't know how and they don't know how to react. So uh, the report, basically, what, what you're saying is it should have led to uh, politicians dropping these mad activist ideas and taxpayer-funded processes, but of course it didn't. Do you know why it is being ignored? Like, is it just because it's one report, or do you think that politicians will ignore? all the reports that are done and it doesn't matter how many reports are, are produced in this in this region well uh, i think that it was mainly because the um, politicians especially in the labor party British labor party um they don't want to get rid of all this because um then they might be condemned by the activists but i think it's I think it's more to do with um, the orders, um, white fragility, white privilege, or these social justice courses, or these social justice courses. Um, uh, I think they they help to actually fund those who are pushing it, who are running it, um, and so the politicians have tied themselves to it. And they don't want to admit that this is um, wrong because it will, if they if they denounce it and they drop it, they will have nothing to um, uh, nothing to latch on, excuse to use their uh, moral authority. That's the thing, moral authority um, against society, against a supposedly institutionally, systemically, structured racist society. So. If they don't have this, what are they going to use? That's the thing. So they probably know it's wrong. They're a bit like, like 
a bit like the old communists who demand a class war, but if there's no class disparity, they can't use the class war to gain power. So in the UK, if there's no ethnic disparity, these new Marxists, they've got they've got nothing to justify the way they're subverting the systems for power. Is, is that sort of, I mean, that's what your article basically says. Yes, because this whole critical race theory, this all this neocultural Marxist, this neo-racism is taking the old, the oppressed, which is black people and the oppressor, which is white people. And they used to be the working class and the wealthy elite. So they they have this and they have built this up. Uh, critical race rate started in the 70s and it's just built up. And, and you know, they believe it to be true because if you drop all this, how are you going to get more companies to teach their employees to try to be less white? How do you get people to read Robin the Angelo's What Fragility book? How do you, um, you know, indoctrinate students uh, to, to, you know, be full searches of cultural Marxism? So without any of this, they're going to be hopeless. They're going to be defeated. So they need to stay on this uh, gravy train. And also because it just, this identity growth, grievance contact industry is such a lucrative industry uh, because as society tears itself apart, as we find new things to cancel, as people are cancelled for racist views, all those people who are pushing this are so filthy rich. You look at that last matter called by Patricia Colos, you know, France, black people have been shot by white cops, um, riots everywhere, and she's staying in luxurious multi-million dollar mansions. That, that's my that mother's in general. So <laughs> they pretend to be oppressed while they are basically profiting of causing civil violence. That's, yeah. that's essentially what they're doing. Basically, yeah. And um, that's what they want in, in Britain because in Britain they have said that um America's beer cause is the same here in Britain. And they're also trying to do that in Australia. And so yeah, it's Marxism rebadged. You know, Marco Thatcher once said that socialists had to find new ways to rebadge their thing. And, well, this is it. <laughs> well, talking about that, this is actually uh, began in earnest with the postmodernist movement, which was put together by the French intellectuals trying to rebrand Marxism into something that, you know, didn't have all the baggage of mass murder of the last century. And mm-hmm. so we ended up with the postmodernism in schools and that, went from being essentially an artistic movement where, you know, the, the writer's intent doesn't matter and there's no such thing as truth and all that sort of rubbish, which I hated. And that then became this, uh, almost overnight, it somehow morphed into let's incite a race war, uh, which it should be condemned by every politician in the world and yet somehow people think they're virtuous if they engage in this behaviour. Uh, and but um, about that, you are an ethnic minority, technically, as far as the left are concerned, um, particularly from you from New Zealand, which means you really are a minority. Let's let's face it. Um, <laughs> but uh, were you ever approached in the school system or by these woke lefties to try and recruit you to their causes? Did you experience any of that, or did you just somehow escape? Uh, I never experienced that in high school, and I never experienced that at TAFE. Um, but I think because now that I know them really well, I'll know how to dodge it. 
Um, but that <laughs> uh, uh, no, I've never been, I never experienced it. I mean, if anything, all the homophobia and all the racism actually comes from nine point nine percent actually comes from the online to the left. Uh, all of it. So none of it is in the real world. I've never experienced that in the real world. It's always on Twitter online. It's like a whole new world. <laughs> it is a whole new world, and we will talk about it in a minute. Uh, but just before we do, a little promo for Boo. Um, I went to your writing blog, and I, I was struck by this paragraph you put out to describe why you choose to write in politics. And I think as... Uh, the conservatives welcome the next generation of writers up and political commentators up. It's important to understand what's motivating uh, these people to write basically against the trend of their generation. And they suffer a lot of criticism and a lot of intimidation from their peers. So this is what Bowie says on his blog. Another reason of why I've created this blog is largely thanks to the left-wing domination of social media and of mainstream media. And for years, they successfully infiltrated and have taken over our media class. And instead of impartial journalism, it's been left-wing bias. Journalists have now been reduced to parroting media statements, promoting conspiracy theories, pumping out endless left-wing bias and being hostile towards conservative guests. Now, I encourage people to check out Boo on Twitter. He's at Booey from Perth. That's F. Double O, uh, sorry, F O O E Y from Perth, one word, and his blog, booeyconservativeblog.wordpress.com, and we will make sure we put those links in the description. Um, but you've talked about social media, so let's dive in and have a chat about uh, this world of chaos and craziness that you and I both actually met in. Like, that's where I met you was on Twitter. Yeah. Um, yeah. And people won't know this, but we started a little conservative radio. Thing for a little while we were getting started in commentary. Oh yeah, yeah. Remember that King Penguin, King, King Penguin Radio? That was fun. Yeah, they were dead. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah. Um, let's talk about one of these goddesses from the left, so to speak, Magda. <laughs> um, <laughs> what has she been up to lately, Boo? Oh, you mean Sharon? <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, oh god, she is wacko on Twitter. Um, it was a photo, it was a photocop image of um, Scott Morrison, Jenny Morrison, the Governor General, and his wife at Government House signing the condolences book for Prince Philip Duke of Edinburgh. Now, Emma Witches, which is Mother Effing Witches, uh, which are uh, I don't even know how to describe them. <laughs> Uh, they photocopped an image of Jenny Morrison looking at her husband standing from afar as he signed a condolences book. And Magda, in a drunken state, tweeted, I genuinely thought this was a Photoshop image of Hamlet's tail, but no, this is 21st century life. And then in the other tweet, in another drunken state, she tweeted, on an image of a zoom in image of uh, Jenny Morrison doing the okay, doing an okay sign on her daughter's um, arm, which was unintentional. And she don't what's that little hand signal finny? And it just blew up. And then in a oh God, the worst damage control interview I've ever seen, and she wanted a current affair 
and um, she attacked those who were coming after her as far right. She attacked the Christian soldiers, um, religious right, faction, political faction in Australia. She made a conspiracy theory that they were all a distraction from Christine Holgate's testimony, despite they all blew up the day before her testimony. And then it just refused her father's views. I mean, I wrote an entire article of it. Uh, it was just, oh God, it was just a disaster for Matt. And uh, she has a show coming up on Channel 9, The Wicked Link. She just exposed herself as The Walker's Link instead. And oh, um, wow. it's, that's, that's a hard hate <laughs> from us, too. Uh, you know, like, like so many feminists, right, on the uh, Me Too woke left, Madness specifically goes after conservative women using her enormous platform of social media to intimidate and harass her political peers. But like, now, don't get me wrong, okay? I am a free speech absolutist and I have no problem with this kind of discussion. I think she's fine to make poor taste memes if she wants to. People will judge her and they did judge her poorly for it. But my point is she then demands protection when people criticise her options. Now you can't have it both ways. Either you're exactly, a exactly. Um, exactly. And I've got a good example. Um, over the weekend, SWA went into lockdown, and as Anzac Day veterans were fenced off from shrine of remembrance, poor Jane Carroll got attacked um, in the Australian. And I went through the Twitter timeline. It's all these people, all these drips, all these civil rights, all these broken people feeling so sorry for Jane Carroll. And I and I now just told her to basically suck it up. <laughs> and one of the people and one of the people said, um, oh no, sorry, it was a tweet that she retweeted, um uh, of basically saying, um, oh no, was that a tweet that I haven't had breakfast this morning, so <laughs> <laughs> well, look, basically, what you're getting at is that the left, they don't play by the same rules as we do, especially online. I mean, oh, and no. you, you are they the oppressor. They did not like that Carol and Sebastian were attacked. Now, now t- tweeted that these same degenerates will attack Jenny Morrison mercilessly, but they can't attack Matt and Sebastian. You can't no, attack Jane Carroll. So there was this double standard and these are the same people who attended the march of justice calling for you know women's rights and all that and then they turn around they go jenny Morrison is a fat slab but you can't attack matt as the best girl drink it's like it's like it's like do you see how ridiculous you sound if so, you're gonna yeah. judge jenny morrison for her life choices and how she chooses to behave then i'm sorry but matter is fair game for all of us to uh, judge her life but then you'll be called a fat but then you'll be called a fat phobic Sexism yeah, well, and misogynism. <laughs> what, what I find amazing is that you are often um, talked about as an oppressor. You, Marcus Fu, are an oppressor by people who have enormous taxpayer-funded jobs and the privilege of being on the left. Now, just on that, uh, Magda's pinned tweet at the top of her profile says, from me, as much as you like, I am never going to close my Twitter account. Now, this demonstrates the absolute privilege of being a spokesperson on the left because Twitter protects her vile rhetoric and no matter what she says, Twitter is never going to take down her account. But anyone who dares to challenge Magda can be removed and censored by social media in Silicon Valley. And I mean, so the it's same just thing that when Jane Carroll called her... 
privilege are the ones who enjoy a state of privilege. Is that? I mean, it, I mean, it's just like when Giancarlo, uh, two years ago, when Mars and Scott Morrison won the election, she was at a wedding and in a drunken fit of rage, she called half the country drunken turd, and she still on Twitter. And yeah. um, you know, it's funny. Um, Jane Coward has never blocked me, nor has Matt Dostabansky, nor have they ever attacked me before. So it's funny. Yeah. Yeah, they've both blocked me. I, I can't see what they post anymore. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned Jane Cara a number of times. Um, now, she seems to be outraged again this week, and it's, and it's worth actually reading her outrage tweet. It says, uh-huh. this war talk, this is the war with China, is totally irresponsible and dangerous. Drought, fire, pandemic, pestilence, floods, and now war, it's positively biblical, which is why it's terrifying. <laughs> Given the religiosity <laughs> of this government. Now, before we get into the ridiculous <laughs> this was meant to be her way of tapping onto the anti um, religious uh, tweets that were going on for Scott Morris and the hashtags that are attacking his faith. That's why she wrote this of rubbish that she has here but i don't think she she realized what she was doing because she's been one of the loudest voices regarding oh i don't know drought fire all kinds of i mean let, let's be clear apocalypse is the language of the left so <laughs> what do you think of caro's ridiculous double standard Oh, it's hilarious because um, I love it whenever Jen Carroll talks about climate change or floods or drought because I remember on one tweet and I, my first article for this blog was about Jen Carroll and her climate hypocrisy. Remember when she drove her car into the, um, that, remember? So, and I remember I wrote an article about that, and I found a tweet where she went find um where a Twitter, uh, innocent Twitter, um, said something along the line that um climate change doesn't cause drought or something like that, and she went off and she I remember her tweet and she said um for fuck's sake um. I'm a part-time, I have a calibrate, a part-time owner of a wine company. Don't you tell me about climate change. And she just went off. Like, she just exploded on this poor, innocent um, Twitter. Um, and it's funny she talks about floods and droughts, considering that she pushes for a really hard left green policies on climate change. She she has said she has said before she's, uh, she's with the green, and so, and so it's no surprise that she pushes for, I mean, she even said on the drum on the ABC when they were discussing about the cost of climate, climate change and global warming. And she's one of those people that said, who doesn't really care about the cost because she's wealthy, she's privileged, she will survive whatever economic apocalypse comes when we have a full-on climate change um, agenda. Uh, she said on the drum about the cost of global warming. Now, I'll be ecstatic if I get if I remember this. She said, "It's a bit like saying um, a child has cancer, or terminal illness, um, and we can't afford the drugs 
or something like that. We can't afford the medication. Someone's the house, so we better just let the kid die. And <laughs> she sat there on the drum. And, and no, but no other parent was like, oh, you're, you're crazy woman. But that's sort of, that's her modest operandi. She pushes for climate change. She pushes for this Armageddon narrative because she's outraged by herself, but she's outraged by her own rhetoric because that's what yeah. she said. In but I'm not sure oh. about the pestilence. I mean, she's written pestilence, <laughs> but I can see that as her. I mean, unless she means the mouth plague out, out west, but that happens literally every couple of years. So it's not really like a hellfire, the war is ending kind of deal. <laughs> I love how she put I love how she put pestilence and I love how she made it. She put biblical or whatever biblical biblical references. I mean, she stopped short of saying the frog plague and your firstborn's gonna die. I mean, she almost went there, but she didn't quite make it. She should have added the 12 plagues of Egypt, that the, the 12 biblical plagues. I mean, it's funny. She, um, in her attempt to try and smear Scott Morrison's faith and the bomb. One of the 12 plagues of Egypt, she uh, managed to make a uh, complete fool of herself. And it just reminds me of all the insane climate uh, Armageddon rhetoric she has said in the past. And instead of, you know, sending her to an aged care home, they are uh, proper up on breakfast television, they proper up on ABC Q&A, she's on the drum, she's everywhere, she's on, she's, she's, she's a frightfully annoying, frightfully loud um, feminist. I think she's got a bigger platform than Magda Zabansky or even Clementine Ford. I don't know why she has well, such she, a big... Yeah. She's a feminist who hates women. I mean, her and Dee were just having a, you know, saying about me, why should I be allowed to speak? Because clearly, you know, they're allowed to speak, but nobody else is. But, you know, she does, I'm going to ground Caro this. She makes a great point in her discussing of all this uh, continuous apocalyptic dialogue that is terrifying and that we shouldn't be doing it. Well, that's a great lesson for the left. Maybe they should stop telling four-year-olds they're going to die tomorrow because of some, you know, unless their parents pay more tax, which is essentially the message of the climate change cult. Um, now, well, I think it'd be great if she, um, I think it'd be great if she follows it, but then just like the anti racist life, she would have nothing to latch on. She would just be nobody. It's her only form of discussion. If she can't talk about the apocalypse, then she becomes completely irrelevant because she doesn't produce anything of her own. <laughs> um, but as we draw be good for society. <laughs> Who should be good for society? We'll finally move forward. <laughs> been regressing into the last couple hundred years. As we draw to a close here on Curtain Call, Who, we love to ask a fun question uh, of all of our guests, and that is if you could have dinner with anybody, living or dead, who would it be and why? You know, I was thinking about this all night and I had two people in mind, but I finally come to one person and that would be His Majesty King Mahavajirana Kong of Thailand. Why? Because I love the Thai royal family more than the British royal family and I think it would be a elegant experience to dine with the King of Thailand. I think it would be, it would just, I'll, I'll die and be happy if that was it. But 
it would just, you know, having the chance to walk through the uh, Dusit Palace or walk through the palace grounds and to sit in the presence of the King of Thailand, who's still a very highly respected figure in Thailand. I don't think anybody could come close. Yeah, I had other people. I didn't mind, say I which just... temple would you like to have dinner at? I didn't say which temple would you like to have dinner at. I said which person, who? <laughs> Not an excuse to visit temple. The King of Thailand. No, I said Dusit Palace. That's the royal ground. I said Dusit Palace. I didn't say a temple. I just is think it, I was... um, uh, what would you would you ask any particular questions? Like, is there anything you would like to know from someone in that position? Um, what they might have seen or how they think of civilization or is there anything particular that interests you? Definitely the um definitely about the Chakri dynasty which is the current dynasty of Thailand and um yeah definitely the Chakri dynasty definitely uh Thailand as Thailand as a uh country and how they how he Things that should move forward as a nation, so something like that, and probably the future of the royal family. So, yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today, Fu. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on our show, and uh, I hope everyone can go and look up your writing because you're a brilliant young talent, and uh, thank you for being here. Thank you, Ali. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.